0: A being called God created all things. God alone always does what is good, right, and perfect. God created human beings in his image and gave them everything they needed to live full and happy lives. The first humans were called Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had one rule. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they did, they would die. A serpent came, who we later learned was Satan, and he tempted them to eat the fruit and disobey God, and they did. God brought punishment to Adam and Eve. They felt ashamed of what they had done. God showed them grace and promised them that one day a greater man than them would come and set all things right. Despite God's mercy and despite Adam and Eve's shame, humanity did not improve. They were dangerously broken. They hurt and killed each other, destroyed the earth and rejected God. It was so bad that God decided to destroy everything with a flood. But one man, Noah, found favor with God. And so God decided to begin again with him. Things didn't go much better with Noah though. So God chose one man, Abraham, and promised to save the world through his offspring. He would make it happen. They would be his people, and God promised to give them back all that had been lost as a result of sin. He would save them, not just for their sake, but so that the world would be saved through them. God would bless the world through blessing Abraham. Sometimes his people obeyed God and followed him, but many times they continued to disobey him. A pattern developed where over and over again, humans would disobey God. He would rightly judge their actions, but would also offer grace and forgiveness, allowing them to return to him. God later created a system of sacrifice where people could offer the blood of an animal in place of their own blood as a consequence for their sin. This provided forgiveness, but it could never produce a perfect people. They continued to sin. Throughout God's interactions with his people, he used certain people to lead. Judges who protected and fought for them, priests who helped offer their sacrifices and served as a mediator between them and God, kings who would rule over them and uphold God's justice and maintain peace, and prophets who spoke God's truth to the people, reminding them to believe and obey God. While these leaders at times rescued the Israelites from their circumstances, none of them were able to rescue rescue the Israelites from themselves. They continued to fail God's covenant. And many of the leaders abused their power, only adding to Israel's brokenness. In this context, the prophets told, Isaiah, told Israel about a Messiah who was coming. Messiah means anointed one. And he would be a king who would reign forever. He would rescue them from slavery once and for all, like the judges, but better. He would be a perfect high priest who would care for their needs and offer forgiveness of sins, providing for them a final atoning sacrifice so they would no longer have to make any more sacrifices. This Messiah would fulfill the covenant himself and make with them a new covenant. Last week, we met this Messiah. His name was Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. Jesus was born uniquely, both a descendant of King David and born from the Holy Spirit. Jesus grew up and always did what was good and right and perfect. He was baptized, and at his baptism, a voice from heaven came and declared Jesus to be the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. The Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove, anointing him. Jesus was tempted then by Satan, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And just like Adam and Eve had been tempted, but he resisted. Even in the worst of circumstances, his love and devotion to God never faltered. He always believed God, trusted God, and obeyed God. Finally, he was ready and the world was ready to be invited into that same kind of relationship with God. I'm gonna pray uh, before we begin the new parts of the story. Dear Father, we are so thankful for this story uh, that you have revealed to us in scripture. Um, It's an ancient story and has so many like unusual uh, parts and systems confusing to us as modern people. But then at the same time, it is so resonant with our own awareness of ourselves, of the world and of you. Um, It is a true story. Uh, Father, I pray as we meet Jesus that you would help us to approach this morning with the same sense of excitement uh, that the Israelites came when they saw Jesus uh, performing miracles and teaching and announcing the arrival of the kingdom. Uh, Father, would you give us have yeah, the same eagerness to listen to him um, and open our eyes uh, to see him truly and to see that he still offers that same message today. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So act five, our act three, scene five, Jesus, miracles, and the Pharisees. Crowds continued to follow Jesus wherever he went as he performed many miracles and healing acts. He multiplied food and he turned water into wine in order to feed others. He healed lifelong sicknesses, both young and old. He cast demons out of people and the demons shuddered in fear before Jesus. He raised the dead to life. One time when Jesus was teaching, he told a paralyzed man, "'Don't worry, your sins are forgiven.'" And some local religious leaders called Pharisees questioned Jesus, who gives you the authority to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sin. Jesus did not argue with them, but simply said, why are you offended? Would you rather I would have just said, pick up your mat and walk? I will prove to you that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. And so then Jesus said to the paralyzed man, now get up, take your mat and walk home. You are healed. The man was no longer paralyzed. He jumped up and pushed his way out the door and went home. Everyone was amazed and thanked God, saying, We've never seen anything like this before. But the Pharisees remained concerned. Soon after that, Jesus was walking along the lake shore when he saw a tax collector named Matthew sitting at his collection booth. In that day, tax collectors were hated and considered traitors because they not only worked for the Roman occupiers, but got rich by being dishonest and corrupt. Jesus said to him, come, be my disciple. And so Matthew got up, left everything and followed Jesus. That night, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to be his dinner guests. He also invited some of his tax collector friends and many other people who were known to be sinners in the community. When some of the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with them, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with those terrible people? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call sinners to a changed life inside and out, not to spend time with those who think they're already good enough. On one occasion, a wild man filled with demons ran towards him from a nearby cemetery This man had been chained to some of the tombs to keep him from hurting people, but he snapped the chains from his wrists and ankles, and now he wandered around all day and all night screaming and hitting himself with stones. No one could control him because he was too strong. As he approached, Jesus said to him, "'Come out of this man, you demons.'" And the man fell down in front of Jesus and screamed, why are you bothering us, Jesus, son of God? Please don't torture us. The demons recognized Jesus and knew who he was. Jesus cast the demons out of the man and healed him of his insanity. He asked Jesus if he could go with them, but Jesus told the man to go and share all that had happened to him. On another night, Jesus met with some of the Jewish religious leaders for dinner They were shocked and offended when Jesus did not wash up according to Jewish customs before the meal. And then Jesus said to them, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside is filthy. Your lives are like bleached caskets or fancy tombstones, so clean when people are watching. But inside you are full of hate, greed, and pride. Jesus continued to travel around teaching and healing, sometimes on the Sabbath, the day of rest. And again, the Jewish leaders were upset about this and confronted Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. And Jesus replied, God, my father never stops doing good, so why should I? This really angered them. Not only was he breaking their Sabbath rules, he was placing himself on the same level with God. Jesus went on to explain to them, I don't do any of this on my own. I only do what my father tells me to do. He is the source of all life and he has given me the power to heal, raise the dead and give life. Those who listen and believe in me will find new life with God that is never ending. As Jesus finished speaking, the Pharisees and religious leaders were furious. They believed that the Messiah would only come if everyone followed the rules perfectly, but Jesus was breaking all their rules. No man had ever spoken like this man and no man had ever won the favor of the masses so quickly and so thoroughly. He even went so far as to claim that he was the very reason for the law and the very fulfillment of it. They were particularly appalled at Jesus acts of healing on the Sabbath and his blatant claims to divinity. They said to themselves, who does this man think he is? No one can forgive sins, but God. Jesus could not be the Messiah. He is a hindrance to the coming of the Messiah and he must be killed. In this scene, we see Jesus's miracles and we saw him perform lots lots of different types of miracles. He healed people, he multiplied food and wine, he raised people from the dead, he cast out demons, calmed storms. What do these miracles tell us about Jesus's identity and power? What's their purpose in the story?
1: I think it reveals God's, the power of Jesus and his compassion for people. His power and compassion.
0: Yeah. Those are really like, a, it's like a, that's a great pairing we, that we don't often see in the world. <laughs> power and compassion often like aren't placed together. Um, and so it's, Especially compelling that Jesus is clearly very powerful and also full of compassion. Anything else? Any other purpose they have? It seems like he
2: um, is able to meet a lot of like practical needs up front, um, and so you know he not only addresses the heart, but he's also very much cares about your like physical well-being, and yeah, overall well-being
0: yeah this isn't a um a Buddhist like reading of material things. you know, like the material is still very important to Jesus. Um, even the wine, you know, his first miracle being turning water into wine, like celebration, like being such a, a value for him to 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 do that what else about, so he's like affirming the material. Um And then what else about these miracle choices in particular? You know, I've always thought like, I mean, there might've been some guy, I think I said this in a sermon in Luke, like uh might've been some guy with like male pattern baldness that like goes up and asks, asks Jesus for healing. But like, we don't, we don't, we don't get that in the story. <laughs> so like, they like, they highlight these miracles. What is it about these miracles that speak to Jesus's, Uh, mission? I guess that's maybe more the next question, which is, what do they tell us about Jesus' mission? Why couldn't he have just been a good teacher and leader? What do they add to his message about the kingdom?
3: I think it's really powerful the verse that Jesus came to heal the sick. And so I think these miracles really showcase that, that Jesus and God is for everyone, not just the healthy, hmm. righteous, um, and so those I think speak to his compassion as well, and and
0: just that he he came for all of us. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta like think about sickness in this time in particular. You know where medicine wasn't widely available. Like it often resigned people to, like, a life of ostracism, suffering. Um, some of the sickness in particular, like the, the woman with the uh, perpetual bleeding and people who were maimed and those sorts of things actually, like, weren't allowed in the Jewish temple complex because they were sort of impure. Um and so he's making them, he's not only just restoring their quality of life, he's also allowing them to like come back into community, come back into the temple, back into um, relationship with the, a community of faith. What do they tell us about Jesus's father who sent him? A lot of people will, if you're you know out and about in San Francisco, and and even even within the church too, people are like, oh man, I like I like the God of the New Testament, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament. Um, but Jesus is saying what that He only does what His Father allows Him to do. What does this teach us about who God is?
1: I think that the word redemption is important because a lot of the. Healings or miracles were interacting kind of with our minds and our bodies and our souls. And so, like, restoring all of that to completeness as originally intended. So, I think that that shows like God's desire to bring back hmm. um, and redeem or restore. Um, so, his will. Um, that Jesus was doing his
0: work and his will is revealed. Yeah. Yeah. And I really love that. Cause that really, that really comes out when you think about it in a story, you know, Jesus isn't just a magician who like shows up to like prove, um, prove that he's strong and powerful, but he's actually actively like pointing to the garden of Eden, like what life should be like, how we were created and, and and trying to move, showing that his kingdom is about restoring that um, Edenic place. One of the things that's always like striking to me and, and connected to this a little bit, you know, is um, why Jesus told the paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven and only later did he heal him of his paralysis? Like, what's important about that order? When you're reading the story, it's almost like Jesus is done. (laughs) Like with the, you know, they lower him down and said, ah, don't worry, your sins are forgiven. And only subsequently is he feel compelled to like heal him of his paralysis. Like, what's that, how how does that order strike you? Do you feel like it's helpful, inconsiderate? Uh, What's important about it?
4: And right, just read off the bat, it, it tells me what I think about. He's addressing what's most important. Mm-hmm. Going for the what's important, more important than him walking is that his sins are forgiven. Mm-hmm. That's just the first thing that pops into my head that Jesus goes right for the the, the most important basic thing that for me this guy has.
0: Yeah, I mean, and
5: I think I'm, oh. go ahead. I, was saying, I think in the same way, it shows, like, the um, priority of why Jesus came. It was not just for physical healing, but it was to forgive sins. And, yeah, so it's, like, both the man's greatest need and Jesus's, like, greatest purpose, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it feels like it explains the wider story. Um, Yeah, apart from a doctrine of sin, um, you could imagine, man, like Jesus could have like set up shop as like the world's best hospital, right? Like, um, yeah, like where it just could have been like a wonderful hospital where just people just came and came and came and he kept healing and healing and healing and healing. Um, but he doesn't do that. And here he's like forgiving sins, but then that's like a nod to like what he will ultimately do. Like he only grants forgiveness because of his coming death on the cross, uh, for sins. Um, why are the Pharisees so bothered by Jesus and why is Jesus bothered by the Pharisees? There's like a mutual animosity here on, on display. Uh, it's not just that the Pharisees don't like Jesus. Jesus doesn't like the Pharisees.
6: I think it's because of what we were talking about and other people were commenting. I think it seems to be most important for Jesus is our, our internal like um, like intentions and our heart, like the purity of, of our thoughts and feelings more so than how clean we look on the outside or how presentable we are. Yeah. And I think the Pharisees don't like that he has all this passion and power and he is, like he they don't like that he compares himself to God.
0: Yeah. Yeah, like the his like willingness to break rules um is super confusing to them, you know, because um, that feels like the most important piece. What are what are other tensions between the Pharisees and Jesus?
2: He um has challenged like all of their preconceived notions of like what holiness or what you know um, faith looks like because they're so used to following you know the letter of the law and he cares more about the heart and so that's kind of pulling the rug out from under them like how they the, the whole foundation that they've built. Um, up until now is is kind of being challenged. And uh, I think that's partially why the, the Pharisees are really, are really um, bothered by Jesus.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, leads hopefully to the next question of like, what would the Pharisees have had to give up in order to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? What would have been the cost to them?
4: Well, it would have been the tight grip that they have on the legalistic rule keeping and more about the very thing that Jesus was upset with them about, about all about being about appearance and what's going on on the outside and not what's going on uh, on the inside. They would have had to have a complete paradigm shift of how they thought about um, uh, their religion or their faith.
0: Yeah, they had really like carved a niche out for themselves um, to where they were well respected, you know, um, and I mean, so a part of it, I think, there is like some vanity there, um, but then there, I'm surely was like genuine, you know. When you look at Paul in the future, the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, as Saul, um, like genuine belief uh, that this it would have like totally rocked their world. Do you think Jesus could have done more to persuade the Pharisees, um, and? If he had, how would that have affected the rest of his mission? Like, why didn't he sort of pivot more towards them?
7: Was that not what all that stiff neck stuff was? That they were so stiff-necked that they didn't... They kept going the straight line without looking right and left, that they were so far off that they didn't even realize it, and you just kept trying to point it out to them?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, that... Jesus is like responsive to so much. Like, I mean, he, like, I mean, his disciples are buffoons, right? Like we don't, we don't get into it much, but like they're constantly messing up and being dummies, you know? And, but then they're not stiff necked. That's a great expression. And and then even in the story that we had read where they think they're healthy and, and Jesus has very little patience for that pride, you know, um, to pivot to the pride might have like catered to it in an unhelpful way. Um, And so actually, I mean, in one sense, you might think like that was Jesus's attempt to persuade them was to just turn away and just (laughs) infuriate them. Um, And I guess a few got the image, like Nicodemus is, is somebody who sort of got the picture. Yeah, what would it have done? I mean, you think about like from other, so like the poor, the sick, the needy, How would they have been affected if they saw Jesus sort of like pivot his ministry, soften it towards the Pharisees? Would it have compromised them some?
7: Well, Jesus had the right way. They were just so far off the mark, there was no nice way to put it. You know, They just kept going straight, but they got a little tilted in it. After a while, they were so far off. There was no nice way to say you guys are missing the whole picture of the Mm -hmm. spirit of what he's supposed to be doing.
0: Yeah. Act three, scene six, kingdom message. Jesus continued to teach people, the kingdom of God has come. Turn from your sins and turn to God. One day, he climbed up a hill with a group of his closest followers, and they sat down together, and Jesus began to teach them about God's kingdom. He said, "God blessed those who realize their need. God blesses those who realize their need for Him. The humble and poor, the gentle and merciful. The kingdom of God belongs to them. God blesses the pure in heart and those who hunger and thirst to be with Him in my kingdom, even when you are hated, mocked, and excluded, you are actually blessed in my kingdom. things are not as they seem." Jesus went on to teach about God's laws that were given to Moses. Don't think I came to get rid of the laws of Moses and the writings of the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. God's laws are alive and will last forever. Live by them and show others the way. That's how you'll find honor in the kingdom. The laws and commands tell you not to murder. But I saw, but I say, if you hate someone or insult them, you are just as guilty as a murderer. Your words and actions bring judgment on you. The laws also tell us never to have sex with someone else's spouse, but I saw anyone who even but I say anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. He also taught them if someone steals your shirt from you, offer them your coat too, live generously, love your enemies anyone can love their friends, but you are to love the unlovable. You must live differently doing what is good, right, and perfect, just like God, your father. The people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. He had real power and authority, unlike anything they had ever seen. And he was definitely nothing like the religious leaders they knew. All right, so that was a, a very a quick telling of the Sermon on the Mount message. Um Jesus' a consistent message was the kingdom of God has come, turn from your sins and turn to God. Is that how you would summarize Jesus' teaching based on your telling? If somebody asked a man, what, what, what is Jesus' main message? Is that how you would have summarized it? Is it a good summary?
4: Well, I know throughout Matthew, you know, the book of Matthew, you constantly hear Jesus saying, you know, repent. Turn from your sins. You know that was John the John the Baptist saying the same thing. So it seems like it really does capture um, the whole idea of, of repenting, turning, making that one eighty, and a spiritual about face kind of thing, and saying, "No, nope, yeah, and turn towards God." That's, that seemed to be his overarching call.
0: Yeah,
5: I think I'm tempted to like complicate it more. You know, like mm-hmm. this is like a true like summary one. One
7: line. Um, so I think that's helpful. Well, no, I know all I can hope for out of all my tenants and people around here is just mess up a little less. <laughs> to me, between man and God, that is best. And that, that's to quit everything and be ch- totally changed. That's like a unfathomable with people. But when you think about it, to try to mess up a little less is a turn mm-hmm. to messing up more. A little tiny step. Uh, not I use harsh words when I'm talking to my people but uh, not mess up a little just mess up a little less that is a big turn, and it kind of gets it in there without them realizing it
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I I I think I want to soften it um repentance is such like a it is such a hard term for us um but that is ultimately like what God is asking me to do, to turn from my ways and my thoughts and my opinions and turn to him. Um, and so like the Pharisees, you know, who are offended, I can be offended, but that's kind of the point. Like, man, you you can't save yourself. Um, you need, the kingdom of God is here. Um, you need to turn to God and, and put aside your rebellion. Um, Jesus begins, though, with the beatitudes. Um, you know, as he like, so he summarizes his message. At the beginning, a lot, a lot of the gospels. The beginning of Matthew, we hear this: the kingdom of God has come. Repent and uh, turn to God. And then he begins his kingdom message with the beatitudes: blessed are the humble, poor, needy, thirsty, persecuted. Um, why is that significant? That that's the beginning of his application of this message.
1: Um. Before going into that, I think the first question is very compelling because I think even I have the tendency to go to the next step, which is like Jesus and just like stepping back to my non-believing friends and just starting with the fact that like the turning component and the need for turning to God Uh, Jesus is might be helpful you know I feel like I have a tendency to go straight for the gospel of Jesus yeah (laughs) hmm that's compelling
0: yeah and that and I mean that kind of leads to like why are the Beatitudes the expression of that like both really hard the Beatitudes are really hard but then they're necessary why, why does he, why does Jesus begin with the Beatitudes?
6: I think, um, yeah, I also agree that first question is really compelling. I mean, it's something that um, I'm still thinking about. And I think my initial reaction is that it doesn't capture the whole message because I think Jesus was about so much more. Um, but I think in, from some of my experiences, sometimes it's become easier to see the moments that God is present in my life when I lack something and how he comes in and shows mm-hmm. up for me. It's just, I guess, like my ability to see his presence or be aware of those moments of goodness are higher because I am in such a like, tough situation that yeah. I did have to like put aside kind of my intelligence or my material things and just trust or have some sort of faith that it will come through. And, and or at the end, I didn't, I was kind of lost in anxiety, but it still came through and I'm able to see that you know, there was some other uh, like supernatural presence or some other presence that was not me that was able to carry me through. Uh, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, you know, those are just kind of my own personal thoughts. I'm not quite sure why he begins with
0: them. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's spot on. Um, you know, when he even when he says to the Pharisees, like, I don't come for the healthy or the people who think they're healthy, like I come for the sick. Um, and so... The, this is a description of people who are really aware of their need. I read before that um, um, the poor are not inherently more spiritual, but they're inherently more needy. And so that just opens them up in a way that the Pharisees are not open to hear the message of Jesus um, because they are humble, poor in spirit, poor materially, needy, thirsty. That posture makes them more willing to listen to Jesus. The Pharisees are upset with Christ, um, but then at the same time, Jesus says, I come not to abolish the law of Moses and the writing of the prophets. Why is it important that Jesus say that? Um, Why does he feel the need to say that to his disciples and to listeners? I mean,
5: isn't the other part of that that he has come to fulfill the law like not abolish it but fulfill it Mm -hmm. and so um, yeah I think it's like he's communicating like a continuity with the the god that they are already familiar with Um, so he's making that connection for them essential for like having a platform to speak you know to them
0: yeah he's this is not a new religion um this is the fulfillment of their religion, um, of the Jewish faith. Yeah. And you might think, kind of, go ahead.
7: He just kind of turned it from force to love and showing, the uh, you know, reminding them the love of God that they should have from the beginning. If they were looked at him fully, he's the warrior and he's the great love. And he fought for us and he came down to die for us. He's, he just, you know, and it turned into more like, a uh, Laws of force, and he just came back to remind them: it's you do these things because you love God. These mm. things are to help us in life. Each one of the Ten Commandments makes our life fruitful and beautiful. Mm. You know, just yeah. A reminder: you didn't change it; you just came to reemphasize it.
0: Yeah, it doesn't need changing um, in any way. Like we're the ones that need changing. The law doesn't needs no change. Um, the standard that Jesus. Puts forward though is is so high. It's so much higher than the Pharisees' standard. To where even he goes so far as saying, "You must be perfect. You must be holy, as your heavenly Father is holy." And and then in the terms of the story, it says, "You must live differently, doing what is good, right, and perfect, just like God, your Father." But what's the phrase that we've consistently heard at the beginning of every week that God is holy, meaning He is He only does always what is good, right, and perfect. Um, and so Jesus isn't compromising the call of the Old Testament, the call of God. He's not lowering the standards. If anything, he's raising it remarkably. How, does this, how is this both similar and dissimilar to what the Pharisees were teaching?
3: I think David said it really well about we follow these rules because of our love for God, not just for the sake of following rules. Um, and even as
1: a, a one, I have to be reminded of that. Hmm. I think both, um, the Pharisees, um, teachings and what Jesus was teaching, they both are like kind of impossible standards. Um, and so they kind of point to the fact that like we can't achieve these things perfectly on our own. And so they point to our
2: need for a God and for a savior.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you you could maybe fool yourself into thinking that you could fulfill the Pharisees' um, laws only if you were like materially provided for wealthy wealthy enough to do all the things that they asked you to do. Um, But you cannot, I mean, there's just like no way where it's like, you have heard it said, don't murder, I say, don't hold hate in your heart. You have heard it said, You know, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust after a woman um, or another person who's not your spouse. Um, And so it just becomes really like overwhelming. uh, uh, Compelling, because like you want to be a person who doesn't do those things. Um, It's not that the law that he puts is unattractive, it's very attractive, but it just feels out of reach. Um, one of the things that I was struck for is like the difference when Jesus is preaching in the sermon on the Mount. the difference between the commands and the high standard he gives me as the listener and then, and what I'm supposed to, how I'm supposed to treat the other person. So I'm not supposed to murder. I'm not supposed to commit adultery in my heart. I'm not supposed to steal. But then if someone steals from me, I'm to give, I'm just to freely give it to them, you know? And so there's this distinction in Jesus's preaching between like, how do I receive this message? And then how do I apply it to other people? And it feels like the Pharisees are so much about applying a standard to other people. Like that's really their focus is morality. If we can just fix everybody else, then we'll be good. Um, whereas Jesus has no intention to fix, um, for us to fix other people Um but to love our enemies, to love those who are unlovable. <clears throat> um, this last question is sort of like, which law do you want for yourself, um, Jesus, or the Pharisees, and which law do you want for others, uh, for the world? Is is there a difference in your heart?
7: It should be same across the board, except management gets double of everything on the freebie table.
0: Yeah, it it should be the same. Do you feel like it is the same? Like, what's hard about keeping it the same?
3: For me, my response is like, that's not fair. I'm following the rules. Like, you have to follow the rules too. Hmm. Um, And so to change that reaction is difficult.
0: Yeah, because it's sort of like, I mean, ideally, I I guess it, it should be the same. But even here in Jesus telling, like, I'm to hold myself to a higher standard than I am to hold other people, or I just am not really to worry. I'm really not to worry about the standard that other people. If they steal from me, if they persecute me, I should let it let it be. Um, that's such a tough a tough dynamic, but one you see on display in Jesus's life for sure, and not on display in the Pharisees. Any other reflections on Jesus's telling of the law?
7: You know, you gotta have a standard, but when you're the one that you know has to escort people out for the safety of the rest of the community, you know, you gotta emphasize more, you know, but these, if somebody's robbing, take something, there is a law, you know, it's the spirit of the sense we have to finesse. Because, you know, we have to remove a bad person from out of the community for the sake of the community. Mm-hmm. And there is standard and errors and stuff. But I think individually, on a personal note, it's always better for them to let things go. You know, you emphasize that it's a troubled soul. And, you know, you embrace them as they take, you know. Here, here, take.
0: Act 3, Scene 7, Parables of the Kingdom. This will be our last section and last breakout. Jesus continued to teach about the kingdom of God. He often used short stories that had powerful meanings called parables. He said, for instance, the kingdom of God is like a tiny seed that is planted in a field. This seed may be small at first, but it grows into a large tree where birds can come and find shelter. Jesus told dozens of stories like this to the crowd. He said, the kingdom is like a hidden treasure buried in a field worth diligently searching for like yeast spread in a large ball of dough just a little will change a lot like a precious pearl worth selling all your belongings to have like a great feast where the poor and the outcast all get invited watch out that you're not too busy to miss it and on and on People were amazed at Jesus' teaching and wisdom. They understood some of these pictures, but others remained a mystery to them. Once a Pharisee named Nicodemus, sympathetic to Jesus, came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know you were sent by God to teach us. Your miracles have proven to us that God is with you. Jesus replied, you're right. But unless someone is born a second time, they will never understand God's kingdom. "'What do you mean?' Nicodemus questioned. "'How can someone who is fully grown "'climb back inside their mother and be born again?' "'Jesus answered him, "'The truth is no one can enter the kingdom of God "'unless they have been born again by God's spirit. "'Humans can only give human life, "'but God's spirit gives new life in the kingdom. "'How can this happen?' Nicodemus asked. "'Jesus replied, "'You are a respected Jewish teacher, "'but you don't know this simple truth?' If you won't believe me when I teach you about everyday things, how will you believe me when I tell you about God's kingdom? What I am telling you is true. God showed his great love for people by sending me, his only son, to this world. Anyone who believes in me and lives in my ways will find life that is complete and eternal. He sent me here to save people, not to judge them. Those who want to live in sin and darkness will reject me and bring God's judgment on themselves. Those who want to live in sin and darkness, those who refuse to live in sin and darkness will trust me and live forever. Elsewhere, the Pharisees asked Jesus, when is this kingdom that you are teaching about going to come? Jesus replied, the kingdom of God is not something you can predict. People will not say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you. A young man came up to Jesus and asked, what good things must I do to get into God's kingdom? Jesus replied, God is the only one who is good. Follow his commandments. The man said, I have obeyed his commands. What else must I do? Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him and said, go and sell everything you have and give money to the poor. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, he went away sad because he didn't want to give up his great wealth and possessions. Jesus told his disciples, It's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. Then how can anyone enter the kingdom? asked his disciples. Jesus replied, If you try on your own, you won't make it. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes into a close relationship with the father, except through me. If you know me, you know my father too. From now on, you do know him and have seen him in me. The entrance to the kingdom of God is narrow. Only a few will find it, but the road that leads to destruction is very wide and many will choose that way and live only for themselves. Why do you think Jesus often spoke in parables? and how does his teaching style stretch you?
2: I think uh, it kind of, it feels a lot more accessible in a way to like understand the symbolism of some of the items that he uses um, as opposed to something that might be more technical and academic. like I find for myself, like I learn better through illustrations or through stories as opposed to like straight up facts, and so I think that's one way that Jesus is reaching people and just kind of showing, um, almost in an artistic way, um, the power of the kingdom and using. Um, using illustrations and kind of not taking license, but using things that feel um, almost um, hard to equate like in just uh, laws or facts.
0: Yeah, parables are almost even, as I'm just sitting here thinking, they're almost resistant to laws. Like it's like hard to turn a parable into a like Pharisee rule. Like it. you just really can't do it. It's like too, it's too squishy, um, too profound to just say, oh, well this means don't do X on the Sabbath. You know, like it, it just doesn't work that way. It's really exposing. How else does Jesus teaching style like strike you and stretch you as a listener?
8: And I feel like with with stories, there's there's a bit of a disarming charm to them that can rope in your your heart and your mind at the same time. Whereas with a law, it can be easy, kind of like what you guys were saying. It can be easy to like keep yourself at a distance and like only engage your mind. But with a story, it's like oh, like you're rooting for someone. You you something happens to a certain person and you're moved by it, and it just like pulls the whole person in. At least in my experience as I see it. Um, sometimes that's awesome. Sometimes I'm like, couldn't you just be more straightforward and just tell him exactly what to do? <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. that's just the way he does it. So, <sighs>
0: yeah.
1: I think too, um, stories stick in our minds. Like, we remember stories and we tend to pass on stories. Um, so I love that about parables, and I think you're right, Mike, it is disarming, and um, I love the creativity in that, and how Jesus models that for us, actually, people, you know, just the creativity he puts in us, but obviously they're not just stories like um, fairy tales or something, they're they're meaningful, deep truth, you know, but the way, the fact that he chose to do that
8: um, in that way, I love that. Yeah, I think as you saying, that, another thing that pops up in my mind is, like, laws were ultimately meant to be, like, relational, and to, like, only deliver them as, like, academic or, like, intellectual, it, to me, it feels like a relational element, whereas a story, like, shows people interacting in different ways, and, like, God created all this stuff for a relationship. And, like, stories do a much better job of, like, showing relationship and relationships, like, dynamic and rich and there's multiple layers and there isn't just one thing going on and that gets captured in a story a lot more fully than just, like, just, like, straight academic, like, verbiage.
0: Yeah, I feel like the stories almost invite you to ask more questions, especially the, like, you know, when we say story, some of these parables are very simple, you know, like they're not, they're not even a full story, but it almost like makes you lean towards Jesus, um, and towards the spirit to where you're really thinking like, what does that mean? Like, um, that, you know, the kingdom of God is like a seed that starts out small and grows big into a big tree where the birds can nest and find rest where you're like, man, what, like, what is that? You lean in as opposed to, just like taking your medicine and going away you know it, it um, is relational considering the whole story oh go ahead something.
5: Right. Uh, sorry I was just going to say that like uh, kind of um, in line with what you're saying about leaning in that like w- later when Jesus explains his parables to the disciples like that's kind of what's implied is like blessed are you because you have ears to hear and like a willingness to understand but like the the concern is the people that are like more hardened or more confused or more unwilling to understand after hearing a parable you know so I feel like that's maybe a good indication like your posture with a parable is like an indication of your heart like are you are you willing to like lean in to have ears to hear it or is it like mucking up Jesus' like, who
0: Jesus is more for you um, and that's an indication of like your your posture I know yeah I mean and Jesus even sort of I mean I'm curious like what a master teacher where he even wanted them to reveal people's hearts to where he would actually like lead to illumination in some people and it would actually blind other people um that it would it would be the thing that turns them off um and we just don't, we think a teacher should always lead to the illumination of everyone, but Jesus like, was more um, fine-tuned in his teaching. Uh, j- moving forward, just the description, um, we'll ask these questions in, less, in light of this. So here's a list of some of these parables where Jesus describes God's kingdom. It's like a hidden treasure, search for it. It's like a priceless pearl, do whatever you can to buy it. It's like a banquet, come, sit down, uh, be born again, sell everything, follow me. Um, What strikes you about this list, both about God's kingdom and how to join it? What jumps out at you from it?
7: Just, I remember a verse somewhere, uh, it's up to every man to search out his own salvation. Hmm. Or a wording, maybe to a song, but it just, you know, it's an endeavor inside of yourself to better yourself in the joyness that it comes, you know? And that's where heaven is. Bettering yourself, walking, you know, accepting them, But heaven, you know, starts becoming on earth. That thin veil starts disappearing and you start walking with the Eternals internally. You know, uh, like uh, uh, one of the songs I listen to, live, learn like you'll live forever, live like you'll die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, but you learn like you're going to live forever, like you're already living in heaven and by those standards, how they would, and you focus that as your eye on the ball and death. What is death? Love yeah, the living.
0: It really does. Yeah, these both like describe the kingdom as a beautiful place, and then puts the onus on the person, it's like an invitation. How is that different? The, the question that we passed over, how is this portrayal of the kingdom different from maybe what the Jewish people were expecting to hear from their Messiah? Um, let's see here. It says, yeah, what kind of king kingdom were they hoping for? What kingdom were they hoping God would replace? And how's that different from Jesus's portrayal of the kingdom?
7: weren't they hoping for the soldier warrior Jesus to come in and wipe out all the nations and such? And uh, and he was just, he came in to let them know your hearts ain't right yet. We're here to fix your heart and conquer that first.
0: Yeah, I think that's a piece of it. And one of the things that I think is striking about that is um, in in these parables, it's not a guarantee that a Jewish person, a Jewish listener was a member of the kingdom like whereas i think most jews were said like oh we're already part of the people of god i'm already a son or daughter of abraham and so i'm just waiting with a sense of entitlement for god to just come and like make this make this work out but here jesus is saying man it's still an open question whether you are a child of abraham whether you're a member of the kingdom in fact, the most obvious people who, who you would say, well, surely the Pharisees, they keep all the rules. Surely they are belong to the kingdom and they're actually the people that Jesus is most opposed to, um, who's, who's who actually he calls them like sons of the devil. Um, like not just outside the kingdom, but enemies of the kingdom. Um, Jesus also said it was nearly impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the disciples ask, um, then who can enter? Um, Which I don't know that, I mean, that was sort of the, is that your response to Jesus' teaching on the kingdom? If you had heard Jesus sort of criticize a a really wealthy man and say, man, it's so impossible for them, would you respond, can I enter? How can I enter the heaven? Is that your response?
6: Well, I think my response is yes. Like I would want to know if I am worthy and if I can come in, Uh, because if I've lived in that time and the Pharisees seem to set like the standard for like what is worthy or not, I I would. And now it's you know just coming in saying that that's not it, then I'd be really curious about well, like is there hope for me to enter? And if so, like can I? Like what do I need to do? Or who can enter?
0: Yeah, and what is the, like, what is Jesus' assurance to the disciples?
7: Isn't it, a, again, a love issue? I mean, you're only really effective in anything is if you're willing to give up everything to uh, go forward in, in what you believe. And especially when it comes to him, and unless you're willing to, a lot of time, a lot of people got to be put up to the Abraham and his son thing, and they back down. People, you know, yeah, got to be willing to give up everything for your love for him. That's you should, he gives all, David. That is his,
0: David. That's that's actually not the assurance that Jesus provides, though. Like he doesn't look to them and say to his disciples, like, "Well, you've left your family, you've followed me for three years." Like that's that's not the word of encouragement that he gives to. The disciples who ask, "Well, then, who can enter?" Is can someone else like remember what? It, what does he say to them to encourage them? Brianda, do you? And a Brianda, did you know? I remember.
6: I think he said that those who choose in their hearts to abandon sin and seek the Lord can enter, can be reborn.
0: Um, he ac-
6: are not from time living in sin.
0: Yeah, he actually like he actually puts none of it on the uh, behavior of the people, but he says, what's impossible for man is only possible with God. Um, And so when he says, man, a rich man can't enter the kingdom of heaven any more than a camel can enter through the eye of a needle. Um, And they say, well, man, well then who can enter? And he says, man, what's impossible for man to do Um, you're right, it is completely impossible for you to meet this standard and to fulfill this obligation, um, to be holy as your heavenly father is holy. What is impossible for man is possible with God. Um, And so their assurance, like the assurance of the disciples is, is not found in themselves in any capacity. You know, it's like, it's just, man, hold fast to Jesus. He will make it happen. God will make it happen. I don't know how, but he's going to make it happen. Um, And I think that doesn't negate like what both you and David are saying where like it does have to do with like leaving sin, turning from sin, turning to God, being holy. But even that, when I look at my own life, man, I'm unable to do that in a consistent and holy way. I still need God to like activate that response in me to like create the faith in me. Uh, All right, well, I want to close again with a word of encouragement and challenge. Uh, Last week in the story, we considered the various options available to the Israelite people when it came to living out their faith. Uh, There were the legalists who are the Pharisees who felt like if they just kept all the rules uh, God would come again and rescue them. There were the separatists who just left society and made their own sort of perfect enclave waiting for Jesus or the Messiah to come. The compromisers who just made do with the Romans and uh, figured out how to uh, turn lemons into lemonade. The zealots who were revolutionaries wanting to take over. And then there was the faithful remnant, the people who waited righteously and devoutly like Mary and Joseph, Um and then Jesus arrives uh, telling all these people that they no longer had to ra- wait. The kingdom of God had come. And the response uh, was to turn from your sin and turn to God. And you had some who did just that. There were zealots who became disciples of Christ, revolutionaries who joined Jesus. There were separatists who were disciples of John the Baptist but who became disciples of Jesus. John the Baptist actually sent them and said, go follow uh, the Messiah. There were even compromisers like Matthew, the tax collector, who left behind their wealth and clout and followed Jesus. Only the legalists, the Pharisees, were resistant to Jesus's message. Um, and as we think about that comparison, as we think about how Pharisees resisted Jesus, we should ask ourselves, like, where where is the Pharisee in me? Uh, There is a legalist streak in all of us. Jesus warned his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, beware little legalistic tendencies in all of us uh, that will corrupt the whole. Um, But at the same time, I don't know um, that I would have reacted to Jesus like the Pharisee reacted. Um, I don't know that I, that you would have either. Um, last week we asked ourselves, which camp would we have found ourselves in of these four or five camps? And it's a really great question, it's really eye-opening, but the reality is, realistically, statistically, few of us would be in any of those camps. Um, Few of us have the resolve, the wherewithal to become a legalist, to become a zealot, have the clout to be a compromiser in a wealthy position, to, to um, be a separatist. And most of us would have just been unnamed members of the crowd. Uh, People who were not radically committed to a cause. People who were normal, working jobs, raising a family, making do with life under Roman rule. And we might have, with the crowds, like come out to see John the Baptist, even been baptized by him. We might have been people who came to hear Jesus' teaching, who were among the 4,000 and 5,000 who were fed by him. We might have been people who even came to receive healing. There were thousands of people that brought their sick and brought their... Um, a demon possessed, asking for Jesus to heal them. But then all those people, the vast majority of those people then went home. They just went and returned to their normal life. And I feel like that's where I would have likely been. That's where many of us would have likely been. People who, would, who were spectators, witnesses of Jesus, but not many became disciples. Tim Keller said the other day, apathy is a bigger problem than atheism for Christianity. And that's definitely true of me. I believe in God. I'm not an atheist. I believe in Jesus. I believe in his death and resurrection. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so the hard part is caring day to day and not just sort of like hearing Jesus and then returning home. When I look at this list Uh, Of how to join the kingdom, I'm both compelled by it and intimidated. Um, The kingdom Jesus describes is so beautiful. The Sermon on the Mount is so gorgeous. And Jesus himself is a beautiful king. You want to be a part of his kingdom. And yet, how do I sustain interest in Jesus? How do I care about the hidden treasure and search for it? How do I sell everything that I have to buy the priceless pearl? How do I stop caring about all the other things and just attend the banquet that he's provided for? In high school, Matthew 633, high school and college, Matthew 633 was my favorite Bible verse. Uh, the thing that was before me all the time, it's... uh Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's from the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus presents this grand vision for life in the kingdom and being human himself, he's well acquainted with our weakness. And so he encourages our disciples Uh, His disciples, man, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about tomorrow. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those things. All those cares will be added to you. Your father knows that you need them. Don't worry about it. Devote your life to me. Devote your life to seeking the kingdom. Devote your life to righteousness. Let me handle the rest. In high school and college, this was my favorite verse. And I still love Matthew 6.33, uh, but my favorite verse today has changed. Uh, It's different. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12.9 is currently my favorite verse when Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. I love Matthew six thirty three. It motivates me to press on, but I need something that speaks to my failure, that speaks to my weakness. And now in the story of God, we're well acquainted with the weakness of God's people. Um, people who witnessed the flood, who witnessed provision, who witnessed the Red Sea and the plagues and deliverance and entering the promised land, who went in and out of the temple with the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, descending and ascending, and yet they still struggled to sustain faith, their faithfulness to God. And as long as you have more sense than I had at eighteen, you're you should be well acquainted with your own weakness. Um, And given that, if today were the end of the story, if the story of God were only four weeks instead of five weeks, we would be no better off than the Israelites were. Witnessing Jesus, listening to his miracles, like hearing about this kingdom that is beyond beautiful and beyond good, um, but left to ourselves, like we would just go home and live our lives. But today is not the end of the story. Jesus knew when he preached the Sermon on the Mount that we could not keep it. Uh, Jesus knew when he gave the parables that apart from his spirit, we would not hear them, that we, like the rich young ruler, could no more enter God's kingdom than a camel could squeeze himself through the eye of a needle. And so this morning, I hope that you're compelled by the Christian vision, a world marked by peace and wholeness, purity and love and grace and power and unity, I hope you are captured by the person of Jesus. What a beautiful human being he is. What a clearly divine person he is. If you're not, I I don't know really what to say to you. You just can't get better than Jesus. Uh, Very few people dislike Jesus. But I also hope that you realize by now that your feelings about Jesus are not enough. Um, they are fickle and weak and confused. I am fickle and weak and confused, left to myself. Even if I were an eyewitness of the Sermon on the Mount, to the miracles, to everything, I would just go home like the rest of the crowd. Maybe I'd be a disciple. Maybe, you know, I mean, there were 12 of them out of the thousands of people. A small chance, the tiniest chance, but then even then, man, when Jesus gets arrested, what do they do? They all run away. We are all weak, we cannot sustain faithfulness. But the amazing thing about the story of God is by this point in the biblical story and by this point in our story, we know our weakness, but we also know that our weakness is not what's important. Our feelings about Jesus and God and his kingdom are not the primary driver of the story of God. The primary driver of God's story is his feelings about us. His love, 1 John four ten. another favorite verse, in this is love, not that we have loved God. We are not the definition of love, the definition of faithfulness. The definition is his love for us, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God knew our failures. He knew our fickle hearts and our sin, and not despite that knowledge, but actually because of it, Because of it, God sent Jesus, not just as a preacher, not just as an example, not just as a healer, but as the propitiation for our sins, the bearer of our sins, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the one who would make us clean, who would set us free, who would forcefully bring us into his kingdom, who would rescue us from the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light. Faith is still important. Righteousness is still important. Matthew 6, 33 is still true. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so we should ask ourselves, how am I seeking first God's kingdom? We should listen to the parables and say, man, how am I selling everything that I have to buy the pearl of great price? How am I searching diligently for the treasure that is God's kingdom? We are only blessed when we hunger and thirst for the things of God. The Beatitudes are true. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are pure, for they shall see God. Am I able to see God? Obedience is still important. Endurance is still important. But as we approach the communion table, let's not think about our own faith and our own righteousness, our own hunger, which might be strong right now, but will wane uh, later today. And let's remember how much Jesus hungered for righteousness, both his and ours. Let's remember how much he sought the kingdom, how he sold everything that he had to have the kingdom and to have us, how much he sought for it on our behalf. Let's remember how Jesus obeyed, how he endured, that we might be his. He is the hero of the story and let's uh, worship him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for the message of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Um, yeah, I just am, am so in love with him. Man, just a beautiful, Person, a beautiful king, a beautiful savior. Man, I want him to be my leader, my deliverer, my king, my priest, my prophet, my friend. Man, I want that so badly. And I'm so compelled by his teaching. I want to sell everything that I have to have entrance into the kingdom. I want to respond to his invitation to the banquet table. I want to come, but I am also well acquainted with my weakness and how fickle my love is, how fickle my devotion is. Thank you that Jesus didn't just come as a teacher. He didn't just come as a miracle worker, but that you sent him to be the propitiation for our sins, to provide forgiveness for sins to purify my heart, to make my heart pure that I might see you, to adopt me into your family and and give me the privilege of being a part of your kingdom. Father, as we sit at the communion table, I pray that we would all sit uh, with gratefulness for your grace Uh, that we're here because of your body and your blood, and that that would be what would motivate us towards love of God and love of others because we have been so loved. We thank you for your story. We thank you for your message. I thank you for your people. Um, And for this morning, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.